God, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that it would be uh, just revelatory for us, that you would reveal yourself and your purposes for us. I pray that it would surprise us. I pray that it would challenge us. I pray that it would encourage us. And I pray that it would speak to each person here individually in a really, really uh, precise way, that you would cut us to the heart, God, and that you would... uh, cause our interaction with this text to be such that we would leave here not um, simply puffed up with more knowledge and like, oh, that's interesting, but that we would be built up in love and built up in, in our resolve to move into your mission. We love you and just ask your blessing on us. Um, spirit, move in such a way that your word becomes alive to us. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be teaching on Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 men found in Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. It's a pretty well-known miracle. But like some of Jesus' miracles, it kind of lacks a bit of a wow factor. It's kind of a story about how Jesus miraculously provides a picnic in the middle of nowhere. Yay, awesome. Uh, Not raising anyone from the dead, though. This story, however, is included in every single one of the gospel accounts. Uh, Not many miracles of Jesus are included by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this one is. And that's a clue. Whenever you see anomalies like that in the scripture, it's a clue that there's something happening here that every single gospel writer said, I can't imagine pulling together eyewitness accounts of the story of Jesus and not including this story. I I just couldn't write a gospel without this story. Every single gospel writer carried along by the Holy Spirit uh, was led to that conclusion. And that means that this story is way more significant than likely it might first strike us uh, on a first pass. In fact, it's actually a miracle in its account that I would say challenges us to reconsider our entire place in the grand scheme of things. It's a miracle that offers a transforming vision for our identity and our mission as the church. It's an account that reveals God's love and grace in a really, really powerful way. And it all happens, all of that gets communicated through what Jesus does with just a few loaves and fishes. So, let's, before we move into verse 30, let's think back on the gospel story that Mark has been telling. It's been very terse, it's been very short, punchy, fast-paced. Jesus is um, striking out into the world, proclaiming the kingdom of God, inviting people to repent and turn and trust God. The Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah to come, some deliverer who's going to lead them into salvation from, yes, sin, but mostly they're hoping they're Roman occupiers, the people, the big bullies who are in charge. And as Jesus bursts onto the scene, the everyday people are like, wow, is this this Messiah guy that we've been hoping for and longing for? The religious leaders are very, very growingly um, hesitant to embrace Jesus, and now we start to see them begin moving into active resistance against Jesus. It's by the power of the devil that he's doing these things. That's part of the accusation that now begins to get leveled. But wherever Jesus goes, things are being stirred up. There's no neutral response to Jesus. People are all are trying to just get Adam for a miracle or they're starting to plot to kill him. At last we looked in Mark, uh, there had just been a summation of Herod, who is the, he would like to think of himself as the king of the Jews. He's a tetrarch who rules over the Jewish people under Roman rule. 
And Herod had, um, we just recounted the scene where, where Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. And now we move into this account. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So just before the John the Baptist beheading account in Mark 6, 12, and 13, this is Jesus had gone to his apostles and he sent them out. He said, I want you to preach that people should repent. I want you to drive out demons. I want you to anoint people uh, who are sick with oil and heal them. And now they're coming back and they're saying to Jesus, I can't believe it. This is what happened. This is the first time that Jesus has ever commissioned them to go out apart from him. And they're excited and they're tired. And maybe they experience some resistance or some hardships. And they're just kind of debriefing from that short-term mission trip with Jesus. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Okay, so just picture that. They get in a boat. They're like, we're just going to go along the shoreline. We're going to go over here. People are like, whoa, that's Jesus and his crew. Let's follow them. We need a miracle. And like, whether it's bad winds or they're tired, they can't row that fast, or (laughs) people on the ground are just super fast, right? They just run ahead of them. And so when the boat pulls up on shore, you're a tired spent disciple and you just see this multitude of people and you're just like for real like for real this was supposed to be like a little getaway this was supposed to be a sabbatical this was supposed to be just hanging out with Jesus and just us and now there's all these needy people and we've just come from serving and helping needy people when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began teaching them many things. Now that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is really, really important in terms of the overall narrative of Scripture. It's a very common expression in the Old Testament that um, is used to describe when God's people Israel either have a complete lack of leadership or inadequate leadership or oppressive leadership. Shows up in a few times. Moses commissions Joshua. God commissions... God, through Moses, commissions Joshua to kind of lead God's people into the promised land. One of the things that Moses says, he says, you know, the reason why this is happening is God doesn't want you to be like sheep without a shepherd. Um, It's mentioned again in 1 Kings. In Ezekiel 34, there's this interesting thing where God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, I've given shepherds to my people Israel, but they've been oppressive. They've oppressed Israel. And one day I'm going to have to come and be the shepherd that... I've actually wanted to provide for Israel because no human shepherd is doing it. So I'm actually going to come and be a good shepherd and be a shepherd that leads people. So when Jesus says they're like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus is seeing these people who technically have a shepherd. They have Herod. He's the king of the Jews. He's the ruler over God's people. But remember who this Herod is. He's what we would say is his, his, um, his faith is completely... It's just a show. It's a pretense. This is the same Herod who just had a prophet beheaded. um, Well, one commentator said, this is the Herod who is carousing with his cronies. He's winking at pretty girls. He's beheading prophets. His henchmen are on the ground, bullying people around. And here are God's people who have to live under that kind of oppressive rule, not just oppressive Roman rule, but oppressive uh, rule from a leader who should be for them 
and helping to bless them and lead them towards what God has for them. And he's not doing that as well. So this is an oppressed people. This is a frustrated people. This is a tired people. This is a worn down group. They're like sheep without a shepherd. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already really late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, think about that for a second. You just came back from a short-term missions trip. You're debriefing with Jesus. Jesus is like, I can tell you're tired. This is, you've been through a lot. Let's come away and rest. Let's just chill. Let's have a retreat weekend. Sleep, laugh, play some games. It'll be great. You get there, all these people. Now there's a pressing human need. You're out in the wilderness. That's what it means by a remote place. You're not in the outskirts of town. You're a long way away. You are out in the Judean wilderness. You're out in the desert. And you're like, no one's brought any food. We, we need to start thinking about getting these people back. They've been here all day hearing you teach Jesus. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now, no one says it, but someone's got to be thinking, what do you mean me give them something to eat? I didn't plan for this. This isn't... What a, what a seemingly ludicrous thing to ask. We didn't bring anything. We were trying to come out here for us, for us to get rest. I, I didn't plan ahead and assume there'd be 5,000 men. And the other gospels say that didn't count the women and children. So let's lowball it and say 10,000 people. Population of Nelson, right there. Oh, I, I forgot to pack a lunch for everybody. They don't say that. They, they go to a different, go to a different uh, pushback. But there is frustration in this pushback. They said to Jesus, well, that would take eight months of a man's wage. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, two things are happening there, both of them totally Christian church classic. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Jesus gives his followers a command, and their immediate excuse is, that's going to cost a lot of money. That's going to cost me a lot of money. I'd like you to do this. Like, am I supposed to spend my money on that? Or just logistically, that's not possible. I, don't worry, I've already run the numbers in my head. Yeah, it's not possible. We don't have enough money. That would take a fortune to feed all these people. And then there's the inference, like, are we actually going to, even if we had all the money, Jesus, would you really want us to spend it all on just this one meal? If we had the money, if we could write a check right now and, and, and provide the food, you'd want us to spend it on bread? Seems, seems a little bit like a waste of money to me. And that got me thinking this week. I was, I was haunted by this question. You know, how many God-glorifying, life-changing, world-shaking, community-restorative initiatives have just never even gotten off the ground because the first step that God's people took when either something was put in front of them or an impression was laid on someone's heart or an idea that the Holy Spirit kind of prompted someone, the first step that was taken was, I've run the numbers, can't afford it. I have uh, I did a, a brief calculation in my head and that would take a lot of time and uh, 
yeah, that's kind of precious to me, so we're going to have to just pretend that's not happening. How often have God's people used we can't afford it to justify not taking a next step of faith? How often have you and I used the excuse of meager resources to justify not taking action on what God has actually called us to do? How often have we succumbed to the false belief that if only we had more money, if only we had enough money, if only we had this much money, then we could do something. But we don't, so we just kind of frustratingly move on. Verse 38, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Right? The disciples' immediate thing of, well, I can tell you right now, we don't have enough. To, I've run the, it's, it's costly, it's expensive, it's not, logistically it's impossible. Jesus turns their attention from what they don't have, and he says, what do you have? Let's, let's take an inventory of what you have. <sighs> Fine. They go around these 10,000 people, they're kind of moving through the crowds. Just take some time. Think about what the disciples are thinking, right? I don't think they're thinking, well, yeah, maybe if we ask people, it'll turn out that everybody on their rush to run over here actually brought a meal and will actually be fine. They're thinking, this is kind of a pointless exercise. No matter what we find, it's not going to be enough. So why are we even doing this? This is a waste of time. But they do it. Gather it back. John's Gospel said they found a boy who had a few loaves and fishes. He gives them to the apostles and essentially says, here's what I can contribute. They come back to Jesus and they say, five and two fish. (laughs) And it, it is that terse in the Greek. They don't come to Jesus and say, Master, we scoured the land, we did what you asked, and we asked people, we tried to take an inventory of what we had, and we have five loaves and two fish. What they did, <laughs> probably wasn't this rude. I'm just embellishing a little bit. Is they gathered it all up, and they stood in front of Jesus and said, five loaves and two fish. Surprise, we don't have enough. Remember, these, these disciples are hangry, right? Hungry and angry together. That's me. When I get hungry and when I'm tired, I don't just get weak. I get hangry. I get angry. There was a stage in my preaching life where my wife had to bring me granola bars so that directly after the service I could eat something so I could be personable with people after the service. Because it was such an intense expenditure of, I know it doesn't look like it, but this is like running a marathon, people. And when you get to the, like, 11.30, you're just spent on so many levels. And, uh, well, even this morning, Heather brought me Power Shake right before the service, and I chugged it down. So I'm going to be very kind and warm and nice. But if you let me go, if you let me go for a day, long edge of a day, out in the hot sun, I hate being hot, I'm sweating, I am just frustrated and hungry and angry, and this is the space that the disciples are in. Jesus We've looked all over. It's just five loaves and two fish. This isn't going anywhere. What are we doing? We need to send the people home now. Jesus directed them, his apostles, to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups 
of hundreds and fifties. Now that is really, really interesting. There's some powerful symbolism happening here. There's something that what uh, theologians call intertextual echoes. There's a layering of echoes that come from other texts that are all happening here at the same time. Very innocent to us, sit down, get into groups, but numbers and details are very, very important in the biblical text. Can anyone pick out any of the echoes that are here? Do you pick up on anything that you're like, hey, that sounds like something? Okay, so we'll get there. So armies, how are armies divided? Armies are divided into squadrons or platoons, right? So it's kind of a thing there. We'll we'll get to something interesting later on that even heightens that. Um, What else do you see going on there? Why do you think Mark says green grass? People always jump to, well, that's just, it's an eyewitness account. It's green grass. It's in the spring. For sure. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, Right? He causes me to lie down in green pastures. Okay, this, we know what it's like to have a bad shepherd as a leader. Is this Jesus the good shepherd? Is this Jesus the embodiment of Psalm 23? Interesting. When Israel moves out of Egypt, out of slavery, the the first great exodus, and they camp in the wilderness... Um, it's not the only ones, but two of the instructions, or two of the camping um, divisions that are commanded by Moses are to be put in groups of hundreds and fifties. And that's in Exodus 18, 25. Jesus is the good shepherd. We're out in the wilderness, right? We're in a remote place. There's nothing around us, just like Israel back then when they were being taken out of slavery into a new promised land. Here's Jesus causing us to lie down in green pastures. He's dividing us up just like Moses divided up the people of Israel. What's going on here? Is Jesus a new Moses? Is he a greater Moses? What is this greater promised land that he might be leading us into? Jesus is always doing things that are powerfully symbolic, and they're awesome if we, just, if we don't understand the Old Testament story. They're still neat and awesome and amazing. We can learn a lot from them. But if we know the Old Testament story, they take on even more significance because they have these echoes, these embedded meanings, deeply symbolic. And lastly, if, you're a, if you have any context for a Jewish culture, or sorry, a Gentile culture, when Gentiles would come together to feast, in large feasting gatherings, you would sit in groupings of 15 and 100. Maybe not, not a lot of Gentiles here, but certainly some non-Jewish people. And when they see specifically people being grouped into groups of 50s and 100s, what they're thinking is, are we getting ready for a banquet? That seems absurd. It's late in the day, we're in the middle of nowhere, and I've kind of eyeballed it. No one's brought anything to eat. So what is going on? Taking the five loaves and the two fish, verse 41, and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples and set bef- to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Oh, that's a, that's a pretty amazing miracle. Now, if you stay with it, it gets even more amazing. I want to show you kind of three things that I noticed. There's a lot, lot more, but I just wanted to tighten it down to three things that I noticed about how the miracle unfolds. Because it's only like a verse or two, and it can just rip by you. 
First of all, notice that the miracle unfolds from little and less. This entire amazing miracle starts because a tiny little boy offers some loaves and fishes to the apostles. It is woefully insufficient to meet the need. But the boy, by virtue of being a boy, hasn't learned yet to think, well, there's no point in giving this to anybody because what good is it going to do? He still has a, a kind of God-given naivete to say, I have, I have something that could help. Maybe Jesus could use this. Whenever I read the story, I always think of the question, you know, Jeff, what's in your hand? You think about, think about that question for yourself. What's in your hand? What do you have that you could bring to Jesus that you haven't been bringing to Jesus because you think, what's the point? It, it's not going to change anyone's life. It's not going to, you know, shake the foundations of the earth. It's not going to change any destiny. It's just this. It's just this resource that I have. It's just a little bit of money. It's just a little bit of time. It's just a, a, I have a basic skill set here, but so we just don't even bring it forward. We just sit on it. But this is a miracle that really warns us and rebukes us for that attitude. Because the miracle says, you might be right. You might look at what you have, and, and you might be completely right. And, and you likely are right. It is insufficient for the need. It is incredibly meager. It is not enough. No one's going to look at it and say, oh, wow, they're holding the key to everything. It's going it to fix everything. But that's not the point of the miracle. The point of the miracle is that the boy, at least, on some level, whether he was recognized it or not, he said, I'm just going to give it to Jesus. And maybe if you and I stopped taking inventory of what we don't have or stopped justifying inaction or a lack of serving because our first line is, well, what good is it going to do? Or logistically, in the grand scheme of things, this can't make any sense. If we stopped doing that and we just started saying, Jesus, here's what I have. I don't know how you could use it, but I believe that you can use it. Would you use it? I think we'd see more miracles. I think you'd see more miracles in your own life, in your marriages, in your workplaces, in our community. The second thing I noticed about the miracle is that it happens through ordinary human means. Think about all the ways Jesus could have done this that would have been a billion times more spectacular. He could have just snapped his fingers, poof, bread just falls from the sky. It's there. He could have clapped his hands and um, he could have done like an Oprah thing, right? Like, everybody, look under your seat. You get some bread and you get some bread and you get some bread. And they could have all been like, wow, they're going crazy. And people are crying. Like, this is amazing. It could have been this real grandstanding miracle. But he doesn't do that. Notice what he does. He distributes the food and he, he doles out the miracle through his disciples. Why not bypass them? Why not just go for the big, big reveal? Here it is, capital M miracle, undeniable. He doesn't do that though because to Jesus, and this is very important for all of us to understand, involving people in his mission is just as important to God as simply getting the results. 
If God was simply results-driven, he wouldn't use any of us because we're not enhancing what he's trying to do, right? We're, 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 not, we're never bringing anything to the table where God's like, wow, this has made my life easier because Jeff's gotten involved. We're always the stumbling blocks in one way. We're trying to be obedient, but even our obedience is, is, is uh, so misdirected and twisted a lot of the time. But God loves us and our participation with him and the relationship that comes from that more than he loves simply cutting to the chase or getting results. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to note about this miracle. Involving his people in his mission is more important to God than simply just getting results. And so to feed 5,000 people, Jesus intentionally uses a less spectacular miracle of meeting people's needs in order to accommodate human uh, participation. He intentionally does something that's not as flashy so that Simon and Andrew and Peter and James and John, teenagers, let's have that picture in our head, that's important, 13 to 21 likely, so they can be involved. Number three, The miracle happens through a process of obedience. The verbs, when Jesus breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples, I'll get a little Greek on you. I I can't uh, read Greek, by the way. It was the only class in seminary I dropped. Couldn't handle it. It caused my brain to become soup. So what I did is I just bought a computer program that I can push a button and say, make me look smart. Just show me Greek stuff and then I can learn. So I don't know Greek, but I know how to use programs that can help me to break down the Greek and understand those. And the verb tenses are different. The verb tense for breaking bread is in the form of the aorist, and the tense of the giving out of the bread is in the imperfect. The aorist implies instantaneous, something happens then and it's done. The imperfect implies a continuous act. So a literal reading of the, of the verb tense would be Jesus broke the loaves and kept on giving them to the disciples. You're like... Okay, I don't don't see the point. Well, the point is, the miracle doesn't happen uh, all at once, in a sense. Jesus breaks the loaves. Disciple one comes up. Here's enough bread for these 50 people. Go give it to them, okay? Next disciple, you come in. And they're just, he just keeps giving bread out of the basket. Jesus doesn't break the loaves and then, boom, there's enough to feed 15,000 people there. And then they gather. The disciples, every time, get just enough to feed the next group of people. Then they have to go back in line, get the bread from Jesus, and keep going back and forth and back and forth, which is kind of an act of faith because that first time, those first few disciples are like, well, yeah, I know we have five loaves, so (laughs) the first five of us are okay, but what happens when you get to round eight and 10 for sure? But then round 15 happens and round 30 happens and all of a sudden it's like, what is going on? This is miraculous. What is happening? Jesus keeps, he's multiplying. Jesus in himself is multiplying the bread. But it's happening through a process. And I think that teaches me that if I want to see miracles happen in my life, I have to be faithful with what God has given me right here. Sometimes we think, well, I want God to provide all the means for the miracle and then I'll step out in faith. And Jesus says, no, I will give you just enough, right? The prayer isn't, Give us, for our life, all the bread. The prayer is, give us today our daily bread. Jesus says, I will give you enough to bring life and hope and healing to this situation, but I won't give you so much 
that you'll, that you'll think, well, I don't, I don't have to go back to Jesus for anything. I got everything from him that I need. Thanks, Jesus. No, again, Jesus wants us to be building relationship, to be participating in his mission, so he gives us enough. And what that means is, I wrote, I wrote this down for myself because I think this is a huge uh, temptation point. I, I'm always tempted to wait for excess in a certain area before I give. I'll wait until I have, I'm pretty sure I have more money in my bank account than I, than I need before I give generously. I'm pretty sure I've figured out all the priorities on my calendar, and these two nights are definitely open, so I can spare one of them to, to do something. I wait for excess before I give. That's my default. And this is a real rebuke against that. This is saying, you don't wait for excess. You, you give what you have, and then you keep coming back to Jesus. And that's the rhythm of the entire Christian life. God, would you use me for a miracle? God says, absolutely, I will use you powerfully, but you're going to get one half loaf at a time. And also notice that God's provision for all these people is on the fly, right? It happens as the disciples obey. So continuing in obedience, even when we don't understand what's happening, um, or if we don't see where everything's going, is still so, so important. So like I said, lots of good stuff here, uh, maybe more than we originally thought. Uh, but there's one more thing, and actually Dan alluded to it, that I want to show you that I think eclipses everything else that we've learned about this passage today. And it's, uh, it's an insight into this text that I think, that I really hope will animate our lives this year as a church. Notice how Mark ends the account of his miracle. In verse 44, Mark says, the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, the other Gospels tell us that there were women and children there also. But Mark doesn't mention that. He says 5,000 men were fed. But why wouldn't you inflate the numbers? If there were 10,000 people there, 15,000, on the upper end, some commentators say maybe 20? That's a, isn't that a more grand miracle? Jesus feeds the 20,000. That's four times as impressive, isn't it? Why would you... Why would you shrink the numbers, seemingly on purpose, when you don't, don't have to? Is there anyone who's aware of the significance of the number 5,000 men in a first century world? The word you're looking for, Dan, is legion. The Roman legion in the first century is 5,000 men. So what? See, I think Mark is, the Holy Spirit is revealing this to Mark in hindsight as he's collecting these eyewitness sources, as he's writing them down. Mark is realizing the larger point of this miracle that he wants us to see is that if we haven't seen it already, this is a big, big tip and tip off. Jesus is absolutely planning an insurrection. Jesus is plotting a revolution. And this is the next stage because Jesus is building an army. He's preparing an army to go to war. He's feeding a legion out in the desert somewhere where all the revolutionary activity happens. 
Remember, all, everything up to this point is God coming. Who is this Jesus? Is he Messiah? We have a false king. We want a true king. We want someone to overthrow Rome. Mark wants us to see that Jesus has absolutely come to bring, a, bring about a revolution. And he's beginning to pull a people together that are going to be part of his insurrection, his overthrow of the forces of evil and darkness in this world. But Mark wants us to see that Jesus has come to wage a different kind of war. And he's come to build a different kind of army. Because even today, when insurrectionists in the Middle East gather out in the middle of nowhere and group people into 50s and 100s, what do they hand out to people? Weapons. Jesus hands out bread. I'm building an army. It's going to overthrow the forces of evil. I'm inviting you to be a part of it. But we don't wage war like the world does. Because our enemies aren't flesh and blood. They're larger principalities and powers at work. And so I'm going to equip you as my army to go... I'm going to feed you the bread of life, and then you in turn are going to be life for other people. This army is not going to sow death, it is going to sow life. And like all revolutionary armies, this one is to be animated and shaped by a single violent revolutionary act by its commander. And it's the same violent revolutionary act that this miracle alludes to. And if you don't see it, go back to verse 31. Jesus gave thanks. He blessed the loaves and he broke them. That day, 5,000 men and women and children besides get fed because bread was broken. The bread breaks, they live. If no one would have broken the bread, everyone's going to die. The only way you can take bread into you is if it's broken. Then you can consume it. Then it's life-giving. If the bread stays whole, you don't. You die. The day, that day, that bread was broken. People eat. It's a miracle. Much more than a picnic. Much more than just Jesus throws a picnic. So when Jesus says, like he does in John, I am the bread of life, this miracle gives us a different window into understanding what he means by that. Because what he means is, as long as I stay whole, you will die in your sins. You are doomed. I am the only thing that can rescue you. But in order to feed you, in order to give you life, I'm going to have to be broken. I am the bread of life. I'm going to be broken into pieces so that you can have eternal life. I'm going to allow myself to be torn to pieces so that you can be made whole. Do we understand? I don't think I do. Do we understand what that means for us? Yes, Jesus is our substitute. He allows himself to be torn apart so that we can be saved from spiritually starving to death and being destroyed. He comes undone so that we can be made whole through the cross. But when Jesus says to his army, to his followers, come follow me, he's also inviting them into the same pattern. He says, my army isn't going to be like other armies. My salvation army, 
is going to be a group of people who aren't preoccupied with maintaining their own wholeness. They're not going to be an army that is for, first and foremost worried about, well, how are my finances? How is my schedule working out? How, how am I coping emotionally? How, how, how is this working out for me? Instead of worrying about securing their own wholeness, I'm going to train up an army to go out into the world who's willing to be broken, who's willing to give sacrificially time, energy, and money so that other people can find life. That's the kind of army I have. A kind of army that doles out life, but they do it at cost to themselves. See, conventional armies secure victory at cost to their enemies. Jesus' army is going to secure victory at cost to itself. So make no mistake, if you are serious about following Jesus, it will cost you. And I'll just be straight up. It will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you reputation. It will cost you things that you cannot imagine. But remember the miracle. God is going to use that in extraordinary ways to bring life to other people. If just the people in this room gathered today, just us, went into this year with that kind of surrender, said, Jesus, I'm willing to be broken. I'm willing to have my bank account broken for the sake of other people. I'm willing to have my plans, my perfect thing broken for other people. My calendar, I've got, you know, start of the year, I've got all these plans, these intentions. But like the little boy said, Jesus, this is all I have. Would you use it? If we'd be willing to do that, what could God do through that kind of surrender? What could God do? I don't know. On one level, I wouldn't hazard to guess, except I would say, I think we'd hear more stories like we did last week from Max and Colleen. Stories of people saying, in different ways, I have been moved into a new passion for Jesus. And I've been... I've, more excited than ever to be involved in his mission. For them, it's in Argentina. For us, it might be somewhere else. But I think we'd hear more stories of people coming alive, our young people coming alive, our children coming alive, our marriages coming alive, our community coming alive to Jesus. If we were willing to be broken so that other people could be made whole, if we were willing to go out into the world and be this salvation army that Jesus is raising up, the church, what could God do? If we all just came to Jesus this week and said, I don't have much, but what I have, I want to give you, God. Use it. What could God do? I don't know. But I totally, totally want to find out. And if you do too, then let's commit ourselves this year to moving into the mission of Jesus and learning what it means to be broken and to sacrificially give and love for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, in a few minutes, we're going to be gathering together to eat, to break bread together. And as we do, may it be a reminder that just as this food feeds us because it was broken, you feed us through your brokenness. We thank you for the cross. We pray that um, the good news of your incarnation and the cross and your resurrection will continue to work on us in new ways. And I pray this morning, particularly for those of us who have... Um, 
held back on what maybe you're calling them to do in terms of making a phone call or taking this step or giving these funds over here, if there's been hesitation, God, because we think there's no point, it's not going to make a difference, it's too much money, or maybe there's just hesitation to let go of what we think is ours, would you use this miracle to show us that you want to use this powerfully, but you can't if we're close-fisted and hard-hearted? Would you teach us to be, in the fullest sense of the word, a salvation army who brings life and hope and healing to this community, God? And not just to this community, but to this province, to this nation, to the world. We don't have much to give, God. But we know that you can make much with what we have. And so we would ask you to do that. In your strong and mighty name, amen.